Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk about Eastern Europe with the Elfin Group's Amance Legis, Jeanette Ozelina, and Dr. Slavomir Dobsky. Jeanette is Professor of International Relations at the University of Latvia in Riga. Amance is a former Latvian diplomat who also served as Latvia's defense minister. Dr. Dobsky is at the Polish Institute of International Affairs. For listeners, the war in Ukraine continues with casualties estimated at over 300,000 and with millions of Ukrainians displaced by the Russian invasion that began in 2014, then um, uh, turned into what uh, experts call a frozen conflict. And then of course, picked up again last February in 2022 when Russian troops launched assaults from the north, south and east. For Eastern Europe, the effects have been profound as refugees sought sanctuary in their countries. Defense budgets have grown exponentially, both for self-protection and to supply Ukraine with arms and munitions. The European Bank for Reconstruction Development in a recent report warned the war is is causing a sharp slowdown in economic growth across Eastern Europe this year, uh, deterring foreign investment and of course, uh, with rising energy prices and borrowing costs. So let's begin. And I'm gonna ask you, uh, Zanita, to lead on this one. And then I want you, Amence, to follow up. Give us a sense of what uh, visible effects of the war are daily life from your vantage point in Riga and as you've traveled throughout the region. So Zanita, please. Um, I think that uh, we could, Uh, divide the situation in two parts. Uh, One is something what is happening in our minds, how we perceive situation, how we relate ourselves uh, to the war in Ukraine. And then there is this objective situation which is related, as you mentioned, to increase of energy crisis, most probably some impact on tourism, probably on some very small sectors of economy. But life has changed really very substantially. Uh, And uh, first of all, uh, not in a negative, but in a positive sense that being Latvian myself, I can be proud of Latvian society, which right after 24th of February uh, really acted in a very consolidated manner. So it's a massive support to Ukraine. There are a lot of different initiatives starting from the government and going down to individual level. So on the one hand, I could say that war is felt in each family, mostly in terms of relating ourselves to what is happening on on the eastern part of our country. Uh, But on the other hand, of course, there are those um, daily situations, but anyway, you cannot compare those sufferings and uh, those burdens which each Ukrainian have to, uh, to, 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 to feel experience on daily basis with what is happening in, in Latvia. And very often when we look at our um, commodities bills uh, and, and uh, how much we have to pay uh, for el- electricity and gas, then I, I think majority of people are saying that we are paying for not having war here in our country. So um, I I could go on and on uh, on on this issue, but I think that 
what is really important that Latvian citizens realize that the war is not a concept in a book, but it is something what can happen um, in Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania in Poland and somewhere else. And we have to be strong and we have to contribute to stability, not only in our countries, but also regional in our country, but regionally and also internationally to keep the war as far as possible and to minimize risks of war. Thanks, Anita. And that's your perspective. And as you've traveled throughout Eastern Europe, uh, your sense of, again, the, the visible effects and any you know, anecdotes you might have that would sort of bring home to our listeners the effect of the war as you see it. Sure, great. First of all, thanks very much for uh, inviting me to your podcast. It's a great pleasure to be joining you today. And I think that, uh, you know, I very much agree with what uh, Janet has said, and that uh, certainly in Latvia, there is that uh, great sense of moral support. But there is also, of course, uh, a change in the landscape, uh, both physically and otherwise. I mean, today I drove past the Latvian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and there were three flags out there. There was the Latvian, uh, the Ukrainian, and the Canadian, because at the, at the moment we have a visit of your uh, the Speaker of your Senate, uh, uh, George uh, Ferry, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. In Latvia these days. Uh, so uh, Ukrainian flags actually from during the last year have been evident uh, everywhere on the government buildings, on uh, shop fronts, uh, cinemas. Uh, when you arrive at the airport, you will see, you know, a, a, a mass of uh, Ukrainian flags. And of course, uh, this was also very evident at the time of the various demonstrations that we had on the uh, uh, just a few weeks back to mark the uh, first uh, anniversary of the full-scale war. Because, of course, this war has been going on for nine years, as we know. Um, you know, uh, when, uh, as you pointed out, when uh, Russia uh, took over uh, Crimea and began their military uh, uh, activities against Ukraine already in 2014, so there is this physical, these physical changes. And one of the other interesting things that have happened in, in Latvia, and especially in Riga, is that there has, there has been a, a debate last year about the removal of Soviet-era uh, monuments that uh, stayed on in Latvia uh, with agreement between the Latvian and Russian governments. And there's a massive monument across the river on the, uh, uh, on the south part of Riga it was about uh, 80 uh, meters high. And so this was a monument that uh, uh, commemorated uh, the uh, so-called liberty of Latvia by Soviet troops uh, from the German occupation in the Second World War. And of course, this was a sort of controversial uh, monument. Uh, and uh, one of the mayors of Riga, uh, 10 years ago or so, decided that the, this monument should be a place of uh, focus for ethnic Russians to commemorate on the uh, uh, 9th of May. So it became a slightly controversial uh, uh, point, but uh, it was then after the 24th of February last year, it was very much also uh, perceived as being a monument uh, of a country that started uh, a, uh, a full-scale war in Europe, which we haven't seen for over 70 years. So a decision was taken by the government to, uh, to pull down this monument together with various other 
monuments throughout Latvia. And so this created quite a, a change in the physical landscape, uh, a part of Riga, and there is still, the monument was, uh, was taken down in about August last year, and there is an ongoing debate about uh, how, uh, how this uh, space should now be uh, uh, filled in. Uh, the question of monuments is not something that is, is just uh, pertinent to Latvia. I think we've seen uh, uh, the same sort of thing happening in different countries in the region, uh, as there's a, a recognition of what Russia has really become uh, during this uh, last year. Now, Janita mentioned the fact that all uh, many people within the, throughout Latvian society that are helping uh, Ukrainians, and one uh, sector is uh, the uh, senior citizens, uh, elderly women who have been knitting uh, uh, socks for uh, Ukrainians, Ukrainian soldiers on the front, and sending them with the help of uh, free postal deliveries by Latvian Post to Ukraine. And we have something also called the, uh, the Twitter convoys, where a group of uh, uh, volunteers uh, uh, take uh, uh, equipment, uh, cars and other things from Latvia to Ukraine. And more recently, the last uh, month or so, um, because of the fact that uh, Latvia has a law whereby confiscated cars, where the driver has been uh, had his car taken away for excessive uh, alcohol and drink driving, and if he doesn't pay for the car to be returned, then it's uh, impounded, and the government has decided to send these cars through to Ukraine. And in fact, the government just made a decision yesterday to send 18 of these cars from Latvia to Ukraine through this Twitter convoy. So that gives you a sense of uh, what's happening in the country. No, that, 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 those are perfect little uh, vignettes. Uh, Janet, maybe I'll ask you then, um, as Amence mentions, the, the ethnic Russian population in Latvia, but it's, it's also the case, I think, in, uh, in, in Lithuania and Estonia. Uh, how is that working out? Uh, yes, I think this is one of those issues uh, which is con concerned not only to the international community, but uh, to ourselves as well. But before I elaborate on, on, on the Russian speaker community in Latvia, I wanted to add one more element to this picture, which we were portraying with Zimans together, how the war changed the situation in, in, in the Baltic states then one of very substantial changes is attitude towards refugees. And when in 2015, 2016, uh, in 2015, Latvia was presidency of uh, the European uh, Union, and we were debating how many refugees Latvia could uh, welcome, we debated 200 up to 700 potential refugees. But when the war started in Ukraine, actually this issue was not even debated. So uh, Baltic society immediately embraced large numbers of refugees, mostly uh, women uh, with children, and uh, they are really offered um, a lot of different support mechanisms. And whenever you go to shops or, 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 or to uh, whatever services, uh, service uh, agencies, you can see a tiny sign, uh, sorry, I don't speak Latvian, I'm Ukrainian. Yeah? So people are, are, are really 
um, integrated into society. Of course, it's, it's, it's not doable in such a short period of time, but at least uh, society uh, opens itself up in order to welcome, uh, welcome, welcome Ukrainians from different parts of, of Ukraine. But when it comes to Russian speakers and Latvians, and indeed situation is not so simple. If you compare Latvian community and Russian speakers community, then uh, Latvians go up to 95, 96% that they support Ukraine and they don't have any sentiments with regard Russia. When we're talking about Russian speaking population, and I'm using this very awkward term, but it is sociological term which describes those who are using Russian language uh, on, on daily basis. So those who use Russian language in their families. So when I say Russian speakers, they can be Belarusians, Ukrainians, um, they can be Russians, uh, Jewish, so different type of, of minorities. And when I look at Russians, then particularly at the very beginning of the war, only 20% supported Ukraine, 20% uh, clearly supported Russia, and uh, approximately 60% they were undecided. And of course, so the government, but also Latvian society was mostly concerned about those 60% because we don't know exactly uh, who are just confused and who of them are actually aligning themselves with uh, Russia, but they don't want to openly state what, what was their position. But looking at the most recent survey, uh, luckily this percentage of those who are not decided yet after one year, uh, it's, it, it's still decreased and this is a positive sign. But what is very important is that uh, Russian speakers who are mm, under 30, uh, with higher education and with average income, a majority of them, over 50%, are in favor of Ukraine. So politically, they are very much on the same line as, as, as Latvian-speaking society. Uh, from time to time, there are um, open manifestations of few persons, I would say, who aggressively attack either cars with Ukrainian signs or verbally abuse people in, 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 in public places. But I can't say that we see massive uh, movement against Ukraine or massive movements supporting Russia's official position. Uh, I think that this year also left impact on, 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 on very many Russians living in Latvia that finally they had to decide. Because for a very long time, so they were sitting on a fence, one leg on the EU side and, and European values side, but the other leg was on, 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 on Russia's side. So now they have to jump from the fence and to take a clear position. And the majority of Russians, as survey shows, they are uh, they, they have made their choice in favor of democratic values. Uh, what's from your perspective? What is the a, the, the visible effects uh, as you go about life uh, in in your hometown and as you uh, as you as you go around 
the country uh, of the effects of the war? Well, um, so the first thing I would like to underline, uh, responding to your question, is that uh, this war is with us uh, since 2014. Uh, Russia um, annexing Crimea and and trying to take over uh, Donbas in 2014 for the first time uh, used. Uh, falls against Ukraine um, and Poland, for obvious reasons, um, uh, was impacted uh, directly by by this um, event. First, uh, Poland is the only country which shares border with all countries involved in this war. I mean, Ukraine, which is defending itself against Russian aggression. Russia, the aggressor, and Belarus, uh, which, which provides uh, uh, its territory and is helping Ukraine, uh, helping Russia um, um, to attack Ukraine. So the sense in, in the Polish society is that war is you know, around the corner, um, that uh, we need to uh, modernize our defense forces uh, as soon as possible, that we need to help Ukraine and Ukrainians as much as we could uh, and as we can. Uh, so uh, after February 24th of this year, I had the feeling that in Poland, um, another anti-Russia and pro-Ukrainian uprising uh, broke out. Uh, everyone, uh, every single Pole, uh, wanted to do uh, something to provide help, and there was a spontaneous reaction in the Polish among the Polish society. Um, so not only government uh, um, uh, stood up, but also ordinary Poles. Um, uh, you know, spontaneously reacted, uh, ran to the border, or wanted to uh, to embrace uh, war refugees uh, coming from Ukraine, and wanted to provide them as much uh, uh, help as they could. Um, Jan, I want to come back to you one more time about Russian speakers in the Baltics. Just if you could give listeners a perspective. A, a, a sort of a sense of of how big they are, and these are people that settled uh, before the, the the end of the Cold War in the, the Baltic countries, and and what would be the rough percentage in um, in Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia? Uh, well, well, uh, this is a very complicated issue, and I could just spend the whole uh, the whole podcast <laughs> on this issue. Uh, since it's my favorite, <laughs> but uh, just to, to make it uh, clear that uh, the largest Russian speakers uh, minority is in Latvia, it goes uh, about 32% and 26% of them are ethnic Russians. Uh, in Lithuania, this minority is smaller. It's around uh, 26%, 24 So I, I don't know the most recent data. But in Lithuania, it's a very small percentage. Yeah? It it's, it's really goes, uh, it, it doesn't reach, uh, 
I think, eight or seven percent. But the issue is that, for instance, uh, the Russian minority in, in Latvia, uh, it can be divided in four groups. The first group arrived uh, uh, in 17th century or even before. Uh, these, this is a historical ethnic minority which lives in Latvia already for, for 400 years, and they are either fully integrated or they are so-called old uh, Russian Orthodox community, which lives in Eastern part. So uh, no, no, no question about that one. Then there is another part of Russian minority, which arrived after 1917, so-called uh, Great Socialist Revolution, uh, running away from Bolsheviks, uh, from, from, from uh, Lenin and his great ideas. And they settled in Latvia as a neighboring country, independent country, still uh, protecting um, their lives and, and, and their freedom of, of, of thought. Uh, but then the most complicated uh, part of, of Russian speakers community are those who arrived after the Second World War and they had this image of the liberators. However, in reality, they were founders and, and, and promoters of occupation and unfortunately, part of them were, were actually uh, acting as NKVD staff and so on. And then uh, there was the, the fourth and the last inflow of, of Russian speakers in 70s as part of industrialization of Latvia. And those two groups, they, they find themselves difficult to accept that Latvia is an independent country, a country which has its own constitution, language, statehood, which is based on democratic values. And they are the ones, at least part of them, are those who are still having sentiments about the Soviet Union, who still uh, love Putin as the, the leader who can settle all issues, so this is um, the part which is uh, uh, unloyal and which can cause uh, troubles for, for, for Latvian society at large. But it's very important to emphasize again and again that not all Russians are pro-Putin and pro-Kremlin. So Russian, society, Russian community in Latvian society is very diverse and, and very mixed. Interesting. Well, thank you for that insight. The, uh, I'll move now to the, the, the recent report of the European Bank on Reconstruction and Development that talked about, and as, as you pointed out, the effects of the war on the uh, economies of Eastern Europe. It, is the European Union and to some degree uh, NATO uh, providing support to the kind of economies that are most affected? Uh, and, and you, of course, are all uh, members of those economies because you've had to bear first the refugee flow and then the cost of higher uh, energy prices is how is that working out from your from your government's perspective and Amanda, I might start with you having served in government yeah uh, thanks very much um, well um, I think we need to bear in mind of course that uh, this uh, the crisis of the full-blown war uh, by Russia against Ukraine uh, erupted uh, just as uh, the COVID crisis was still really around. Uh, although, of course, from the 24th of February uh, uh, last year, nobody was talking anymore about uh, 
the uh, pandemic, but everybody was talking about Ukraine. So, uh, so uh, because of that, uh, you know, we had uh, the European Union did set up uh, uh, some uh, uh, funding. Uh, they're called the uh, recovery funds for uh, countries that had uh, uh, suffered also from the COVID crisis. And so, uh, I think uh, uh, I think it's been more a question of. Uh, uh, each individual country uh, dealing with the resilience of having to not rely any longer on uh, Russian energy supply or the energy supply from Russia. And uh, so uh, the government uh, in Latvia, for example, has uh, helped to subsidize bills, uh, increased electricity heating bills uh, during the last year. And uh, so there has been very, uh, there has been support also for the more vulnerable uh, senior part of the population. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the funding has also been important for supporting the Ukrainian refugees. There are about uh, 42,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees in, in Latvia. Um, so uh, uh, perhaps uh, I think the for us, what has been important is that the European Union has also lent its support to Ukraine itself. Uh, uh, first of all, by agreeing for the first time in its history to uh, give military aid to a third country. Uh, and secondly, uh, once uh, during the onset of winter last year, October time, when uh, Russian bombs were attacking the infrastructure uh, in uh, Ukraine, uh, and uh, the electricity grid was being affected. So not only were Latvians pulling together and sending generators, but we also saw from the European Union a lot of uh, funding uh, being uh, used for that, for this uh, critical infrastructure. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think that uh, we necessarily feel anything over and above the usual because Latvia is a, a recipient country within the European Union, um, you know, I haven't had a sense that the man in the street feels uh, any greater support uh, from the European Union financially. Uh, at the same time, when it comes to NATO, uh, the support there has been extremely important uh, after the 24th of uh, February last year, in as much as there were immediate measures taken uh, by uh, the Americans to uh, uh, send more special forces over to Latvia. Uh, as you know, uh, Canada as the lead nation, which has had, uh, we're very grateful for Canadian support. And this is one of the reasons why your speaker is also uh, the speaker of the Senate is in Latvia these days. Uh, uh, Canada uh, uh, in, in, in Latvia, we also have, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, Slovenia, and other countries in this uh, enhanced forward presence of NATO countries. And so the decision taken by the Alliance uh, in Madrid last year to increase this presence has been very important. And we even signed with Canada a, a separate bilateral agreement on to how this uh, uh, increased military support will, uh, will come into play. At the same time, of course, we need to stress that uh, there is a realization in Latvia that uh, we need to do more for our own defense. The defense does start at home. And so 
uh, we are in the process of uh, bringing back in conscription uh, uh, to Latvia uh, to increase uh, the number of uh, military personnel that are serving uh, in our armed forces. Amanda, my impression is that all of the Baltic countries and Poland and other, the defense budgets have gone up exponentially and that you, there's no problem with meeting the, the NATO target of 2%. Am I correct on that? Oh, very much so. In fact, uh, you know, uh, our government is, is moving towards 2.5%. Uh, there is talk of moving towards 3% already. And there is, a, of course, because we're in a war uh, situation, there is an acceptance in society uh, that this, this should be the case. There are no arguments across the political board for the, for the main part, of course. There are one or two minority parties that are not represented in government that are against an increase of the uh, defence budget. But uh, we had already, uh, you know, as uh, uh, prior to the 24th of February last year, we'd already increased our defence budget to 2%. Two, two and we're very much coordinating these measures with uh, our uh, Estonian, Lithuanian partners, Poland, of course, as well, because of course our four countries, the Baltics and the and Poland, are uh, you know the traditional eastern flank, which after 2014, you know the decision by NATO was to have this enhanced forward presence uh, um, of uh, allies to defend the territory of uh, uh, of nato to its full extent and especially where it was clear that we were more vulnerable so let me turn doctor to uh, poland because uh, president biden of course was recently there and, and gave a major speech to uh, leaders from eastern europe uh, your sense of, of dealing for, first of all with the refugees because my impression is that poland has has uh, has given uh, haven to most of those who fled, uh, some who've since gone back. At the same time, as we were just talking on the military side, you've also enhanced your defense budget and have been a major supplier of, of arms and munitions to Ukraine. Yes, that's correct. Russia's uh, renewed aggression on Ukraine um, created a huge uh, deficit of security in Europe. And Poland, as, uh, as Ukraine's neighbor, um, responded to this, to this uh, deficit and became a, a, a really a security provider in all possible domains. Uh, first of all, uh, first of all uh, Poland was, was the country um, to which you know, Ukrainian refugees uh, uh, came as a, as a uh, safe haven. <laughs> It was a moment of, in the last year when almost three millions of Ukrainian refugees were in Poland. Now it's 1.5 uh, um, uh, million um, uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, permanently um, uh, in Poland. So, uh, you know, Poland uh, helped these refugees uh, with the amount of almost eight, eight billion uh, euro. Uh, both, you know, uh, coming from the from the state budget and and other individual contributions of of, of Poles. Then, of course, Poland um, uh, realized that you know Ukraine is is fighting for um, peace in Europe, 
and it's defending uh, security architecture uh, uh, in Europe. So um, we need to do uh, utmost to to help this this uh, um, uh, this in this tragic situation. You know, Poland uh, sent it was the first country which which uh, sent uh, main battle tanks, three hundred. Uh, T-79 post-Soviet uh, hardware, but then uh, um, um, we, we set hobbies, we sent um, quite recently um, um, low parts too. Um, now we, we, we are in talks about uh, providing Ukraine with, with uh, aircrafts, MiG-29, MiG Poland was ready to send them to Ukraine already last year. But there was no consensus uh, among the allies in that, that moment. So uh, unfortunately, this decision was postponed. Now um, there, there are signs that uh, um, you know Ukraine will receive um, something like thirty uh, MiGs, twenty nines. So uh, and of course there is a there is a there is a huge financial support, half of of uh, of amount of of uh, um, um, oil on which Ukrainian army um, is, is is fighting and moving comes for Poland as well from the Polish raffineries. So uh, altogether, um, there is a uh, there is a sense um, and and bipartisan support um, uh, for that that uh, uh, we need to help Ukraine to, do, to repel Russian aggression. Um, we need to mobilize allies uh, to provide uh, all what Ukraine needs. And I think uh, uh, also this political aspect, political support uh, uh, provided by, by Poland also uh, played um, uh, a place, uh, um, important role. Uh, there was a Polish prime minister who actually a year ago, fifteenth uh, of, of uh, March, travelled to Kiev together with the prime minister of, of, of Czech Republic and Slovakia, and all of them uh, showed that actually, if you want to be a part of this pro-Ukrainian coalition, you need to uh, you know jump into the train in in Przemysl and go to uh, Kiev, meet Zelensky. Um, and in that sense, um, they, um, leaders of, of Central Europe created the kind of the definition, uh, what actually uh, uh, does it mean to be a member of pro-Ukrainian coalition. Uh, the same train um, was took by President Biden, you know, uh, not uh, uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, he went exa exactly the same direction, exactly the same road, um, um, showing uh, United States commitment uh, to the freedom, to democracy and, and to Ukraine. I think it was very important that the countries of, of NATO eastern flank uh, were united behind Ukraine. Um, and there were leaders in, in, you know, in political domain, in military domain and in humanitarian domain. And I think, uh, I think it shows how important um, um, this uh, uh, war and Ukrainians' uh, fight is for Europe. Well, let me just follow up on that uh, with my, my impression, and, and you've just kind of brought this home, is that Eastern European 
solidarity of the values of of what they they see Eastern mm -hmm. Europe standing for has has certainly strengthened since the war, mm -hmm. and arguably so has European unity mm -hmm. East and West, uh, because we've traditionally kind of thought of Eastern Europe and Western Europe, but maybe that's too much of a stretch. So you, would you? What, what what is your impression on that? And then I'm going to ask Jeanette and Amance to come in on that question of of kind of the 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 unity within Eastern Europe and then unity within Europe, uh, which includes Western Europe. Yeah, it it seems to me that um, uh, war in Ukraine uh, slightly changed the narratives uh, debating Europe. Uh, we cannot so clearly state that uh, so-called old Europe think one way and the newer, new Europe, Eastern and Central Europe, are thinking in a different way. Uh, even if we look back uh, in, two, in 2014, um, after Maidan and, and uh, Crimea, still they were different approaches to what happened there. Uh, we agreed on sanctions, but interpretation slightly was different. Then starting since the 24th of February last year, at least my reading is that Europe becomes more and more united. And if, for instance, we look at the European institutions, whether it is uh, European Commission or European Parliament, or we look at the capitals. So consensus is pretty much there. Can you imagine some time ago, European Union agreeing on arms delivery to Ukraine? Uh, or for instance, despite um, Hungary and uh, despite sometimes Italian votes, so decision on sanctions is taken very, very quickly. And by the way, already in January last year, shortly before the war, uh, European Commission already had on its table um, uh, drafts of sanctions, which were negotiated with the United States. So I think the war also taught a lesson to the European Union to be serious, uh, finally, to talk about defense, to talk about arms, to talk about military actions, rather than uh, human rights, which are important, but still, usually these were demarches, human rights issues, and so on. Now, the narrative is completely different. And I think that this is a good signal, not only for Europe itself, that European citizens could feel more protected, but this is also a very important sign to those who have some imperialistic or aggressive intentions that Europe is not the old one. Europe is ready to act and, and to step forward with different initiatives. Of course, I can be critical also, but I think if I compare Europe before 24th of February and Europe after, it is different European Union. No, thank you. Amance, you'll have a perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, I very much uh, agree with uh, what Janet was saying. And I think, uh, uh, I think Putin got quite a shock because uh, he wasn't anticipating the type of uh, unity, both, first of all, uh, of the European Union, 
but also uh, the unity uh, that was uh, shown by uh, the European Union, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, uh, what has been extremely important, I think, uh, given that uh, the United States has is still very much in the forefront of the support that it gives uh, to Ukraine, both militarily, financially and otherwise. You know, the United States gives more than all of the European Union countries put together. Uh, and I think what, what, what we've actually witnessed is this uh, uh, really important uh, coordination uh, between uh, Europe and, uh, and the uh, our transatlantic partners uh, with, with the United States being in the lead. I mean, we even saw this uh, during uh, President Biden's visit to Ukraine and, and Poland uh, a few weeks back, where there was, again, uh, a joint announcement that was synchronized with the European Union about the next uh, set of sanctions and the individuals that were going to be uh, sanctioned. So, uh, so I think uh, this has been very effective geopolitically. It has also shown that the European Union, uh, you know, given its unity, can become more of a global actor and be taken into consideration. This is probably something that China is also taking note of, uh, you know, the unity between uh, the European Union countries and, uh, and the uh, transatlantic uh, allies, uh, and uh, the attempts both by Russia uh, and as we see China to split off uh, uh, various uh, European countries and try to divide and rule has not been successful over the last year. Uh, whether this unity will hold, I think that's uh, the big question. Uh, you know, uh, Jeanette mentioned en passant uh, the question of Hungary. Uh, we have seen that uh, the Visegrad country four, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary, uh, because of uh, 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 Prime Minister Orban's special uh, approach to uh, President Putin and to Russia, uh, that political unity has really uh, split slightly. But having said that, yes, uh, Hungary has been on board on all of these uh, 10 or 11 uh, sets of sanctions they have uh, been on board as far as NATO is concerned. What is uh, an issue at the moment is, of course, the question of uh, 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 Finland's and Sweden's uh, accession and the uh, parliament voting, uh, both the Hungarian and Turkish parliaments voting for Sweden and, uh, uh, and uh, Finland to join the alliance. Uh, but I suspect that at the Vilnius uh, summit, uh, in the summer of this year, NATO heads of state and government uh, uh, that uh, at least uh, it's pretty sure that Finland will join and or, uh, uh, and or uh, Sweden as well, because that would be the, and, and this really shows how uh, Putin miscalculated in his, uh, in his uh, uh, full-scale war against Ukraine last year, uh, because rather than uh, hoping that this would uh, hold back NATO, it has actually uh, encouraged the enlargement of the alliance. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we've, we've stuck together, which has been incredibly important in these uh, uh, very complicated geostrategic uh, times. No, for something that uh, President Macron 
labeled brain dead a few years ago. It is certainly, NATO has certainly come back. In discussions with friends in Washington in recent weeks, especially since the visit of President Biden, they, they underlined to me that in the future, whereas they used to look uh, at sort of talk to Paris and Berlin uh, to get a sense of where Europe was, they now felt that they would also include uh, Warsaw in that, in part because, they, again, as you point out, the president's visit and the sense that Eastern Europe has put itself on the map, uh, and whether Warsaw is the fair representative, it uh, is the biggest country. Poland will now play more into that. Doctor, do you feel think that's is is that something that you feel? Or do you think that will be one of the effects, uh, the longer term effects of the war? Well, um, uh, we were right on on Russia. Um, yes, we that right was pointed out. <laughs> We, we were right on 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 Nord Stream two as well. Um, there were other countries we were which uh, were pushing um, hard to to um, to make this an energy bridge to, to, to Russia. You know, the, the Central Europe, particularly Poland, uh, was all the time we were very skeptical about about um, this. I'm also a little a little bit less enthusiastic about how the European Union reacted to all of that. Um, um, yes, I, I'm fully, fully agree that it, it plays instrumental role in imposing sanctions on Russia. You know, uh, we can say that Ukrainians are fighting on the first front. I mean, you know, are trying to repel Russian aggression on the ground. But uh, all other members of the free world, including European Union, are, we are fighting on the second front. I mean, on trying to undermine economic uh, uh, poten Russia's economic potential behind this war. Um, so, uh, in doing this, we, we are trying to uh, to make this war as short as only possible. Um, but uh, we have to also bear in mind that you know, um, uh, uh, Ukraine was knocking to European Union doors since two thousand four, since the Orange Revolution, and and um, generally it was rejected. So the the Ukrainians' aspiration to become a, a member of European uh, family uh, were rejected. And Germany and Paris were, uh, were among all those uh, great powers in Europe, in the European Union, which uh, didn't want to accept Ukrainians uh, to the European Union. So only after, uh, so so only after this war, uh, after 24 February, um, um, following the you know, uh, the initiative of, of of Poland and other. Uh, 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 countries of Central uh, Europe, the European Union agreed to uh, grant Ukraine a membership perspective and 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 recognize Ukraine as a as a candidate to uh, uh, to the EU. Well, how long this uh, special role of Central Europe and Poland uh, may last? Well, I think as long as Russia will pose a threat to to Europe to European peace. As long as Russia is aggressive and tries to um, um, again um, um, uh, conduct imperial policies towards neighbors, 
uh, I think what we share in this region, I mean, from from Finland to to the Adriatic, from from the White Sea to the Adriatic Sea, I think we share the uh, you know very traumatic experience of being dominated by Russia as an imperial power, uh, and we we need and we know much better than other our allies are situated in more comfortable uh, geographic locations that um, um, either we stop uh, Russia in Ukraine or Russia will go farther. And other Russia, other, um, either we will be able to delegitimize uh, uh, use of force as a tool in, in Russian foreign policy toolbox um, or we will deal with um, with um, again again with Russia's aggressions on on neighbors. So uh, um, the stake uh, cannot be higher. Um, we we try to not only to to stay united uh, behind Ukraine as a region as a as Central Europe, but we also try to mobilize our allies. Um, to uh, you know, help Ukraine to uh, um, to prevail and win this war. Um, um, it is absolutely crucial for uh, peace in Europe. It's absolutely crucial for transatlantic relations. Well, why I'm uh, that's my last point in this in this intervention. Why I'm less enthusiastic about uh, all this situation. You know, we 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 have to bear in mind that without United States. Uh, um, Ukraine would have been overrun, uh, and Europe uh, would not be able uh, to provide adequate assistance to Ukraine. So there is a, a growing asymmetry uh, between United States um, and Canada from one hand, and Europe from the other. We are doing, um, we are moving uh, too slow, uh, and unfortunately. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Europe is is a kind of free, free rider in this in this situation. Um, we need to adapt. We need to change this situation. Uh, we need to act much more uh, faster than uh, than we did. Good points. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question, next question, is that the the war on the battlefield is certainly gets the media attention. But arguably, the communications war is just as important. Uh, Jeanette, and then Amance, I'd be interested in your perspective of how that side of things are going, given disinformation uh, and the, the battle through social media that is also taking place. Jeanette, do you want to start? Uh, yes, um, I think that... Um at least the Baltic states are very well aware of disinformation campaigns about hybrid warfare, because if I look at different events in my country, then actually since, uh, since regaining independence, uh, we constantly faced different, uh, different, different attacks uh, from Russia in that particular battlefield. So for us, it's not something new, but again, after 2014 and after this massive uh, hybrid warfare, 
launched by Russia in, in, in particularly Eastern Ukraine and Crimea, I think that uh, we became very capable uh, in identifying and counteracting uh, to whatever comes uh, from, from, from Russia's side. Uh, I think that uh, we are not um, direct targets of, of, of Russia's disinformation campaign uh, anymore because of different reasons. First of all, Latvian society, but I think that Estonia is seen as well, we are very resistant to this Russia propaganda. It, we used to have it so much that it's so easy to identify that where is a propaganda, disinformation and fake news and where it's not. Uh, and uh, secondly, we have uh, NATO Strategic Communication Center here in Riga, which regularly produces different uh, papers, studies, and the director of the center almost uh, each second day is our media reporting uh, and warning if something occurs. And on top of that, I have to mention that um, our regulatory body uh, has actually switched off all uh, Russian media channels. And uh, our media space became uh, cleaner and, and it's not so much uh, spoiled and, 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 and so much influenced by uh, Russia's produced media content, which which used to be part of, of, of our daily media consumption, but it's it's not operating in, in, in our in our information environment anymore. So even if Russia tries something to do, uh, it's much more complicated to do because there are less channels. Uh, and uh, secondly, people are more aware of what disinformation and fake news are. So therefore they know how to either switch off their brains or, or, or not to follow that. Um, at least uh, if I just try to remember in recent months, whether there have been any um, example of uh, impact of Russia's disinformation in, 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 in Latvian society, I can't recall a single one. So Russia doesn't have this leverage anymore. Interesting. Amance, the disinformation, because I know that it has been a big deal. And as you point out, the hybrid center and the disinformation center in uh, uh, the various capitals, uh, the, the, that has had effect on, I guess, strategic communications as well, the, the NATO centers of excellence that also sometimes shared with the EU. Yeah, uh, that's right. Well, as, as you right to point out, uh, uh, Latvia has this uh, niche capability in many ways uh, that is developed over the uh, over the past uh, decade or so, based on our experience of uh, having dealt with uh, disinformation propaganda from Russia. So we have this NATO Center of Excellence for Strategic Communication, as it's called. But uh, I don't think that this necessarily stops uh, Russia from uh, trying uh, out all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, if we look at the last few days, uh, there has even been, uh, uh, Lavrov has been talking about uh, the resurgence of Nazism in the Baltic states, uh, uh, you know, and the uh, Russophobia of the Baltic states. Uh, he's uh, He was laughed at, of course, at the G20 
meeting where there was a side conference uh, held there when he uh, said to the audience that, uh, look, uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia was about to be uh, attacked by Ukraine, by all these fascists, uh, and the audience laughed at him, which shows uh, really the different uh, way in which uh, I think societies and, and uh, um, those who are uh, subjected to the propaganda uh, now react, especially on the Western side. But their propaganda machine doesn't stop. You know, if you look at uh, uh, this so-called uh, Gerasimov, uh, General Gerasimov doctrine, uh, Russia is constantly at war. And so uh, the, the information campaign, the hybrid element is, is uh, continuing on a daily basis. Uh, uh, you know, we've just witnessed these, uh, uh, the different interpretations, of course, about the uh, way in which this drone, uh, uh, US drone, uh, uh, was uh, grounded over the Black Sea. Uh, uh, the United States said that their drone was in uh, international uh, airspace. Uh, Russia uh, uh, makes other claims that it was in uh, uh, Russian airspace, etc. So, so I think we do uh, need to uh, continue to be uh, uh, both aware and, uh, and reactive to uh, all of these uh, actions, uh, uh, the hybrid war actions that are, are being taken uh, uh, by Russia. And in this context, I know that uh, uh, you know, our governmental officials uh, meeting with uh, the uh, the uh, speaker of the Senate the last few days uh, have also said that uh, it's important that uh, Canada should continue to cooperate with Latvia, both on a bilateral level on this disinformation issue, but also uh, within NATO and within the European Union and Canada dialogue. Oh, man, it's well said. And, and I guess I've, that will be my, my last question before I ask you all what you're reading or streaming. And I want uh, Jeanette to pick up on this. And then, uh, Doctor, you know, do you, what more would you like from Canada in terms of what would be helpful? As Amance points out, just being there and providing the assistance is, is important and sustaining that. Is there anything in, else or in particular that you would highlight, Jeanette? Uh, very quickly, uh, complementing what Iman said. Uh, Russia's disinformation uh, machine and propaganda machine is working very hard, but its impact is limited. And I think this is the victory on, on the West side, but we have to be very aware. What we expect from Canada, I think uh, the same presence as it is already, uh, because since enhanced forward presence uh, in the Baltic states and Canada and Latvia particularly is very visible. And I really appreciate that Canada is working hard, not only in protecting uh, defense and deterrence to Latvia, but they are also very visible in Latvian society with different initiatives and with different activities. And it is very important that uh, uh, Canadians are not only placed in Adagi in, 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 in this particular place, but it's visible in society at large, emphasizing solidarity and support in case of, of, of crisis and difficult times. Excellent. Doctor, what could Canada do to help uh, Poland? You know, certainly, I, please. Yes, I, think, I think it would be highly appreciated if uh, Canada um be more active in helping and assisting uh, um, ukraine 
Um, it, uh, you know, uh, Canada joined uh, the so-called uh, the Leopards Coalition. I mean, the, the coalition of countries which uh, decided to provide Ukraine with the modern Western tanks, uh, Leopards too. Uh, Poland was the leading country in this coalition. We provided 14 a, com a company, uh, 14 uh, and tanks, um, uh, 14 uh, Leopards. They are already in, in Ukraine. Uh, they have been delivered. Um, uh, so, but uh, uh, Canada provided only four vehicles. Um, so there is a there is a, a kind of the uh, um, asymmetry. Uh, one may say fourteen tanks from Poland and four uh, from Canada. I think it would be great if Canada could uh, uh, could provide uh, more tanks. A company. Why not to send a company of Leopards to uh, to Ukraine? Ukraine needs uh, um, uh, tanks to uh, effectively fight with the Russians, um, defend themselves. So we need to provide uh, everything what Ukraine needs uh, to prevail and push Russians out of its internationally recognized borders. All right, good advice. We have a budget coming down in a matter of weeks. and. Uh... The defense spending, you know, we are, I think, at about 1.3% of GDP, certainly not matching either the NATO target or the uh, uh, the, the efforts that uh, your countries are making. Uh, so thank you. My, my last question, Doctor, I'll start with you. What are you reading or streaming these days? Yeah, we are, there are two issues of, of, um, of uh, you know, great importance. Uh, they are inter, interconnected somehow. So we are following the debates uh, inside the United States uh, about Ukraine, um, uh, we sense that that uh, um, there is a growing, uh, let's say, disagreement over Ukraine's policy in the United States and Washington DC. Um, uh, so that's the one issue which which is you know very high on our agenda. And the second uh, issue is, you know, uh, this uh, war. Um, ends this or other way, but I think that, that Russia will become a very aggressive uh, country because this 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 war is is changing Russia. It's it's changing the 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 way how the elites are uh, um, think. It's it changes uh, uh, the procedures, institutions, and society. Unfortunately, Russia is becoming darker and darker. So the question is how we should. Uh, shape the, the international system, the, the security system in Europe uh, to protect Ukraine um, after the war, to protect peace in Europe after the war, how this model should look like. So that's, that's all our, that's the, this kind of issues are on, on our agenda. All right. So thank you. I think quite profound and uh, very reasonable. Jeanette, what are you reading or streaming these days? I'm these days very much in uh, psychology, and uh, now on, on my table is the newest journal of new philosopher, which approaches uh, risks uh, from different perspectives and uh, how not to fear risks, but how to make risk a companion of your life. And I think at least for, for decades to come, this will be our companion on, on not only daily, but hourly level. Well said. Amans, what about you? What are you reading or streaming these days? Yeah, well, uh, for a bit of light relief, I've been uh, reading uh, a Latvian uh, novel, a young young novelist who 
who has written about uh, the imaginary continuation or the imaginary exploits of a, uh, a former Latvian uh, uh, author who lived in the United Kingdom, who, who, who fled uh, from Latvia in the Second World War. So he goes into his mind, he's done a lot of research on this uh, author, and then he imagines uh, various scenarios that, uh, that this author has been, uh, uh, has been involved in. So, so that's my light relief. But uh, I, I can confess that, uh, uh, if, if I can call it streaming, I've, uh, I myself wrote uh, recently, uh, finished an autobiography uh, entitled uh, uh, How I Became uh, Foreign Minister of Lithuania, rather than Latvia, and other other stories. So uh, this is something that uh, next week uh, I'm going to be uh, presenting to the Latvian uh, uh, Association of Diplomats. Uh, so that should be fun. Uh, well, thank you all so much for uh, joining me in this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Amance Lichis, Jeanette Ozalina, and Dr. Slavomir Dobsky. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. Mm -hmm.